The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. Before we get into the story, I want to say a big thank you to Mary and Jared for becoming Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome, and your support is much appreciated. The case I'm covering in this episode was suggested by Patreon supporter Kelly. I recently reached out and asked Patreon supporters and members of the Murderish Facebook group for case suggestions. You guys really came through with some great suggestions, so don't be surprised if you hear your case suggestion covered on the show at some point soon. All right, let's get into the story. July 29, 1963, Joseph and Tess Evanitz became parents for the first time. Their son, Richard Mark Evanitz, was born at Providence Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. Mr. and Mrs. Evanitz would go on to have two more children, two girls named Kristen and Jennifer. From the outside, the Evanitz family seemed to be an average American family, but inside the family home was a very different story. Both parents had affairs. Tess, Richard's mother, thought her son could do no wrong, always making excuses for Richard when he got into trouble. Richard's father, Joseph, was an alcoholic. Richard claimed that his father physically abused him as a child. He said that when he was six years old, his father tried to drown him in the bathtub. Joseph denies this. Richard said he started crying when water got into his eyes, and his father, in a fit of rage, started pouring water over his head while Richard tried, in vain, to breathe. Joseph's alleged physical abuse was not limited to his son. On Christmas Eve of 1971, he allegedly choked three-year-old Kristen until she passed out. Jennifer Evanitz described the family home by saying, We lived in a prison. Joe was a very controlling person. He wanted us to make straight A's. If we didn't, we were stupid. It was all about power and control. She quoted her father saying, quote, You'll get an A or you'll get a beating. I see him as a sadistic man who got pleasure. I know I saw the pleasure in his face out of making us miserable. Richard Evanitz's problems began at an early age. When he was 13, he was caught making obscene phone calls. Two years later, he broke into a neighbor's home to steal some coins. When the police came, Tess defended her son, and no charges were ever made. In addition to those indiscretions, one of Evanitz's sisters claimed that he started molesting her when she was 16 years old. In 1980, Evanitz graduated from Irmo High School in Columbia, South Carolina, after only three years at the age of 16. Clearly, he was of above-average intelligence. After graduation, he started working at a Jiffy Lube, In February of 1984, Evanitz wrote a bad check to Kmart for $350. 
After that incident, his father told him he could no longer live with them. Not knowing what else to do, Evanitz joined the United States Navy, where he would serve for eight years. In 1985, Evanitz's parents divorced. Tess, who worked as a phone operator in a prison, began an affair with an inmate named Perry DeVoe, whom she later married. DeVoe was in prison for the rape and murder of a grade school teacher named Kathleen Sanderlin. The rape occurred in 1975 when DeVoe was 17 years old. Tess saw her relationship as a way out of her marriage with Joseph, whom she had wanted to leave for years. DeVoe has come up for parole more than once since being imprisoned, but each time he has been denied. He remains in prison in South Carolina today. In January of 1987, Evanitz, while stationed at Mayport Naval Station in Jacksonville, Florida, saw a teenage girl walking with her little sister, who was only three years old. He pulled up to the curb to talk to the girls. The 15-year-old girl later told police that when she got close enough to the car, she could see that Evanitz was masturbating. She grabbed her little sister and ran away. Evanitz drove off so fast he almost hit a group of children riding their bikes in the street. The girls ran home and told their mother what had just happened. The next day, the 15-year-old was riding in the car with her mother. As they drove by a video store, she saw Evanitz's vehicle in the parking lot. They drove to a phone and her mother called the police. By the time police arrived, Evanitz was gone. Officers got his information from the video store where he had rented some movies. Eventually, police discovered that Evanitz was in the Navy at Mayport Naval Station. When he was arrested, Evanitz told police he was drunk at the time and that he liked to masturbate in front of young girls. He received a small fine and three years of probation for the crime. The Navy demoted him and sent him to rehab as a condition of his punishment. In August of 1988, 25-year-old Evidence married for the first time. His bride was 16-year-old Bonnie Lou Gower. When asked after his crimes about their sex life, Bonnie said that it was, quote, normal, although he would sometimes blindfold and rape her for hours. In 1989, Evidence re-enlisted in the Navy for three more years. In November of 1992, he was honorably discharged. During his eight years, Evanitz received five medals, including the Navy Achievement Medal for Leadership, the Good Conduct Medal, two Coast Guard Meritorious Unit Ribbons, a Sea Service Deployment Ribbon, and a National Defense Service Medal. In January of 1993, Evanitz and Bonnie moved to Fredericksburg, Virginia in Spotsylvania County about halfway between Richmond, Virginia and Washington, D.C. In April of that year, Evanitz began working as a compressor salesman for Kaiser Compressors, a distribution company. He worked there for a little over a year. Co-workers would later say that he was so degrading to women, they would purposely avoid him. They also said that he had problems with his anger. It wouldn't be long after this that Evanitz would become a serial killer. In June of 1995, Evanitz broke into a house with a gun. The only people home were a 13-year-old girl and her 11-year-old sister. Evanitz locked the frightened 11-year-old girl in the bathroom while he raped her 13-year-old sister. Fortunately, 
The girls survived the attack but could not identify their attacker. Years later, when it was known that Evidence was responsible for this crime, police believed that he had been planning the attack for weeks. In August of 1996, Bonnie left Evidence for a man she met online. She moved away from the home she shared with Evidence in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and headed west to sunny California. A few weeks after Bonnie left, on September 9th, Evidence left his job at Walter Grinders, a company that sold compressors. He left around noon, telling his employer he had a dentist appointment. Instead, Evidence drove to a house where a young girl was sitting on the front porch doing schoolwork. The girl was 16-year-old Sophia Silva, who was a junior at Cortland High School. It was discovered later that Evidence had been following Sophia for a while, so he could familiarize himself with her daily routine. Sophia's older sister, Pam, was inside the house at the time Evidence pulled up to their house. When Pam went out onto the porch a little while later, Sophia was gone and Pam never heard a thing. Upon learning his daughter was missing, Sophia's father, Umberto Silva, went out with friends and relatives to look for Sophia. Phyllis Silva, Sophia's mother, called police to report her daughter missing. Like so many disappearances, police believe Sophia had run away. They did, however, report her as a missing person, and tips came in from all over the U.S. People were saying they had seen Sophia. Psychics were consulted or volunteered information and gave varying descriptions of where they saw her. One said she was in a body of water and surrounded by vegetation. Volunteer parties and helicopter searches yielded no results in the first few weeks. Finally, five weeks after Sophia's disappearance, on October 14th, her body was found wrapped in a blue blanket floating in Birchwood Creek, about 20 miles from her home. Although she was clothed, her socks, bra, and underwear were missing. The medical examiner was not able to determine her cause of death, because her body had been in water for over a month. He said that she most likely died from being stabbed, strangled, or asphyxiated. Suspicion for Sophia's murder fell on Carl Michael Rausch, who had been arrested previously for numerous crimes, including indecent exposure. Rausch's landlord told police that Rausch's behavior changed right after Sophia disappeared. Two weeks after the abduction, Rausch moved out of the house he was renting. The landlord also said that Rausch liked to stare at children in the neighborhood. Rausch's ex-wife was questioned. She denied that Rausch had ever beaten her or asked her to shave her pubic hair, something Sophia's killer had done to her. When police decided they needed to question Rausch about Sophia's murder, his ex-wife called him at his home in Florida. Rausch quickly came back to Spotsylvania, where he was promptly arrested for an outstanding theft warrant. While in jail, several inmates alleged that Rausch admitted killing Sophia. In January of 1997, police searched Rausch's van, where they found hairs, four different types of fibers, and a purple speck. The lab later concluded that the purple speck matched materials found on Sophia's body. Apparently, she had been wearing purple nail polish when she disappeared. Witnesses came forward saying they had seen Rausch talking to Sophia in the past, and Rausch only lived a few houses away from the Silvas. Rausch was eventually charged with the murder of Sophia Silva, 
and with abduction with intent to defile. After Rausch was indicted, police closed Sophia's case, certain that Rausch was her killer. There was some circumstantial evidence that seemed to link Rausch to the crime, but there was one major problem. DNA taken from Sophia's vagina did not conclusively match Rausch. Police knew this, but still believed they had their man. Ron and Patty Lisk lived on Blockhouse Road in Fredericksburg, Virginia, about 10 miles from the Silvas. They had two daughters, Kristen, 15 years old, who was on the freshman soccer team at Spotsylvania High School and was trying out for the school's dance team. Kristen planned to be a veterinarian when she grew up. Her younger sister Katie, 12 years old, went to Spotsylvania Middle School Katie was a big fan of R.L. Stein books and wanted to be a cartoonist for Disney when she got older. Evidence had been stalking 15-year-old Kristen for weeks and knew she got off the school bus around 3 p.m. each day and walked home. On Thursday, May 1, 1997, Evidence drove over to Blockhouse Road to wait for Kristen. As he waited in front of the Lisk house, he saw Kristen and Katie walking up the street from their bus stops. Tragically, the two sisters would never be seen alive again. A little after 3 p.m. that day, Ron Lisk started wondering why he had not heard from his daughters, who always called him when they got home from school. He called the house to make sure everything was okay. His call went unanswered. Worried, he decided to leave work early. He headed home to check out the situation. When he got to the house, he found Kristen's book bag laying in the front yard. Next to it was an open math book. When he went into the house, he found that the home alarm system had been turned off. Investigators later theorized this indicated the girls may have gone into the house before being abducted. Ron called around to see if his daughters might be at someone else's house. Then he asked some of the neighbors if they had seen the girls. When he found out that no one had seen them or heard from them, he called police. When police spoke with Ron, they agreed with him that Kristen and Katie had not run away. Neighbors were asked to help search for the girls. Over 1,500 people, including some active-duty military personnel, joined various search parties over the weekend. Flyers were handed out giving a description of the girls and yellow ribbons were wrapped around trees for their safe return. Ron and his wife Patty were not considered suspects. The only clue police had was a witness stating that they saw a white pickup truck in the area right around the same time the girls disappeared. On Tuesday, May 6, police would find their next clue. A backpack which belonged to Katie was found in the South Anna River about 40 miles from the Lisk home. Later that day, the search for Kristen and Katie would come to a devastating end. The girls' bodies were found in the river. Investigators began to suspect that Kristen and Katie's deaths were related to that of Sophia Silva. Police called in the FBI to go over evidence they found in Rausch's van. Ronald Knight, Spotsylvania County Sheriff, said, quote, We're going on the lab's report from the Silva case. We based our whole deal on the Silva case based on the lab report. As general police work, we just asked the FBI lab to look at everything else. FBI forensic investigators announced that the initial work done by the police, linking Roush to Sophia Silva through hair and fibers, 
was flawed. Furthermore, if the three murders were related, Rausch could not have murdered Kristen and Katie because he was in jail awaiting trial the day the sisters went missing. Although police claimed he was still a suspect in Sophia's murder, on June 2, 1997, Rausch was released and all charges against him were dropped. Similarities between Sophia Silva's disappearance and that of Kristen and Katie began adding up. Carpet fibers found on the Lisk sisters matched those found on Sophia. All three girls were about the same age with similar builds and the same color of hair. All of them were brunettes. They had all been abducted around the same time of day outside of their own homes. Sophia and Kristen had been sexually assaulted and left in bodies of water. Although Sophia's body was found wrapped in a blanket, she was wearing the same clothes as those she disappeared in, but her bra and panties were missing. Kristen and Katie were also found clothed, but Kristen's bra had been removed. As far as authorities could tell, Sophia did not know Kristen or Katie. She went to a different school, and the two families attended different churches. Autopsies would later reveal that the pubic hair of Sophia and Kristen had been shaved off. This fact was reported by WUSA-TV in Washington, D.C., which infuriated the police. They wanted to keep this sort of detail from getting out. This type of signature, shaving pubic hair, was extremely rare in sexual crimes. Retired detective Joe Matthews, who had investigated the kidnapping and murder of Adam Walsh in 1981, said, quote, I've worked over a thousand sexual batteries and I don't recall one of them being shaved. That's very significant. Robert Ressler of the FBI's famed Behavioral Analysis Unit remarked about the shaving of the pubic hair, saying, quote, It's very unusual. It could be a distinct signature. It's not a positive thing, but it has to be considered. There are too many connections that make it logical and reasonable to assume that you could have a connection in these cases. Another connection between the two cases was that they were both stranger abductions, which are also very rare. Stranger abduction homicides account for less than one half percent of all homicides, and they are among the most difficult cases to solve. Ishers, I know you've heard of meal delivery services. How about trying one where meals cost about the same as your favorite bougie latte? Every plate is America's best value meal kit with meals that cost only $4.99 per serving. Every plate recipes come together in about 30 minutes, which gives you more time to binge Dateline and spend more time with your family, of course. Every plate does the meal planning, shopping, and prepping for you and meals come with all ingredients pre-measured. I mean, you can practically cook these meals with your eyes closed, although I don't recommend that. I've cooked several every plate meals and I'm happy to report I'm now a Michelin star chef, in my own mind, but whatever, that's beside the point. One of my favorite every plate meals is the pepper jack grilled cheese with creamy roasted tomato soup. My family loves the chimichurri steak with roasted sweet potatoes poblano and onion ishers do you want to become a dinnertime hero now you can 
For six free meals across your first three weeks and free shipping on your first delivery, go to everyplate.com and enter promo code MURDERISH6. That's everyplate.com, promo code MURDERISH, and the number six. After his relationship to Bonnie ended, Evidence began having financial problems. In 1999, he lost his house in Fredericksburg, which prompted him to move back to Columbia, South Carolina, where he lived with his mother. He got a job as director of auditing services for a compressor company. He also met an 18-year-old waitress named Hope Crowley. In January 2000, now 36 years old, Evidence married Hope, who was 20 years old at the time. The couple continued living with Evidence's mother, Tess. Although he was married, Evidence continued looking for girls and women who caught his attention. After choosing his next victim and stalking her for weeks, he made plans to kidnap and rape her. Because he had been following her, Evidence knew her daily routine. He just needed to wait for the right time. On June 24, 2002, While Hope and Tess were on vacation and visiting Disney World, Evidence decided to execute his plan. He had lied to his wife and mother, telling them that he could not go with them on vacation because he had to work. In truth, he had taken time off work to kidnap and rape the woman he had been stalking. He knew she walked on certain streets, that her parents were gone at this time of day, and that she would go into her house through the rear door. Fortunately for the unidentified woman, she changed her routine that Monday, and Evanitz was unable to find her. That change in her daily routine may have very well saved her life, unbeknownst to her. Not willing to wait for the next day, Evanitz began driving around in his mother's Pontiac Firebird to look for another girl. He drove down Dove Trace Drive. As he drove down Dove Trace Drive, he saw a teenage girl out on the front lawn watering some flowers. Evidence had found his next victim. Kara Robinson was at her best friend Heather's house that day. She had spent the night at Heather's house and the two girls had decided they were going to the lake to swim. As they were about to leave, Heather's mom called from work and asked her daughter to water the flowers. Heather's mom could have never known that her phone call would trigger a series of events that would change all of their lives forever. Heather was about to take a shower, so Kara volunteered to water the flowers for her. Kara went outside to the front yard. She saw a car drive by but didn't think much of it until it turned around and headed back toward Heather's house. The car turned into Heather's driveway and a man got out. The man told Kara he was selling magazines and asked if her parents were home. Kara told him she didn't live there and that it was her friend Heather's house and that her friend's mom was not home. The man said he had some magazines for Heather's mom and asked Kara if she would take them for her. He walked a few steps toward her with the magazines in hand. As Kara reached her hand out to take them, he suddenly pulled out a gun and told her to get into his car. 
the man forced Kara into a Rubbermaid container in the back seat and closed the lid. The man got into the car and drove off. Terrified, Kara told herself she was going to comply with the man so she could escape with her life. She decided quickly that she was going to attempt to learn as much about him as possible so she would have enough information for the police to arrest him. When they pulled into his apartment complex, Kara looked around to see what she could learn about her abductor. Since she had been in the container while he drove, she didn't know where she was, although she made sure to memorize the right and left turns the car made. She looked at the refrigerator magnets and made sure to remember the phone numbers for the man's doctor and dentist. Amazingly, she had also memorized the serial number of the Rubbermaid container she had been hidden in during her abduction. Kara saw fish tanks filled with fish and different types of lizards. She started talking to the man and learned that he had been in the Navy. Then, he started asking her questions and writing down her answers. He asked her things like her name, whose house she was at when he took her, whether she had a boyfriend, and about her past sexual experiences. Kara knew what was going to happen next. As he had done before, the man shaved Kara's pubic hair and made her take a shower. He then proceeded to tie her up. Over the next several hours, the man repeatedly sexually assaulted Kara. He turned on pornographic videos and made her describe what she saw going on. At times, he would pause the videos and assault her again. During the evening news, the man said he wanted to watch it to see if Kara's disappearance would be featured. Then, he told her he had to make a phone call and forced her back into the Rubbermaid container. He called his wife. When he got off the phone, he gave Kara some food, made her smoke marijuana with him, and had her take a Valium. He then told her they were going to sleep. He took her back into the bedroom and tied her to the bed with a pair of fuzzy handcuffs. He wrapped them in wire to make sure she couldn't get away and then tied one of her ankles to the bed rail. Early the next morning, Kara woke up and saw the man was still lying next to her, asleep. She could hear him snoring. She knew this was her chance to get away, but she had to untie herself without waking him up. This was a huge risk, but Kara knew she had to take it. Miraculously, Kara was able to slide out of the handcuffs and get out of the house. She later described exactly how she was able to do it, saying, quote, My hands were kind of up here, and so the first thing that I did is I tried to kind of reach my hand to unscrew the C-clasp, and I couldn't quite do it. There was just enough room that I could kind of get it to my mouth, and I used my teeth to unscrew it. I still had my hands in handcuffs, and then I was able to kind of slowly wiggle down my ankle enough to unattach that to the bed, and then I just kind of slid out of bed without waking him up. After quietly getting off of the bed, Kara said, quote, got my clothes back on and went into the living room, went to the door, and at the front door, right beside the door, there was like a coat closet, and it had one of those accordion-style doors on it, and it was metal, and so you know, that's like a noisy door, and there was stuff, like the vacuum cleaner and the Rubbermaid container, was also right there in the little foyer area. And so I moved the container. I pushed the vacuum in and unlocked the door. 
and I knew that the door was going to make noise whenever I closed that accordion door. So basically, in one motion, I closed the door and opened the other one, and his bedroom window looked out onto the front door, basically. So I just knew he was going to wake up when he heard that, and I knew he was going to be able to see me, so I just did it as fast as I could and I ran. I just thought for some reason he was going to wake up and he was going to shoot me through the window, but I was out. When she got out to the parking lot, Kara saw a car passing by. She ran out into the lot to wave it down. She said, quote, I ran out in front of the car and waved my arms and stopped them and went to the driver and said, I was just kidnapped. I just came from that apartment and I turned and pointed to it. It was the guy in that apartment right there, so remember it. They were of course like shocked, you know. A young girl with handcuffs dangling just ran out in front of their car. The men drove Kara to the police station where she told authorities what had happened to her. She gave them a description of her abductor. Officers asked her to come with them so she could show them the apartment where she had been held. When they got to the apartment complex, she couldn't remember exactly which unit she had been taken to. She did, however, recall something else that she had seen in the apartment. She said, quote, I knew that there was a woman living there. I knew that she had red hair, you know, because I saw the long red hair in the hairbrush. So whenever we were able to go back to the apartment complex, and I wasn't able to point out the specific apartment, there was a property manager riding around on a golf cart, and so the investigator stopped him and said, quote, This is the information that we have. Do you know what apartment it is? And the apartment manager was like, Yep, I know exactly what apartment that is. By the time police entered the apartment, evidence had fled. He had woken up shortly after Kara made her escape. Upon discovering that Kara was gone, he grabbed a few items, including his gun, some marijuana, marijuana pipes, the Rubbermaid container he had put Kara in, and the clothes Kara left behind when she fled. He also removed several items from a footlocker where he hid trophies of his crimes. Before leaving Columbia, Evidence went to a local Walmart to buy a TV VCR. He withdrew all the cash he had in his bank and stopped at a drugstore to fill a prescription for Viagra. He then drove 300 miles to Jacksonville, Florida, where he hid in a motel for a few days while he pondered what to do next. On the evening of June 27th, Jennifer Harris, Evidence's sister, received a call from her brother asking her to meet him. She had not talked to him in years. Not knowing that he was on the run from police, Jennifer made plans to meet her brother at an IHOP restaurant. Jennifer called her sister Kristen in Columbia, South Carolina, at which time Kristen informed her that their brother was wanted for kidnapping and rape. Armed with this new information, Jennifer called the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department and told them where they could find her brother. Richard pulled into the IHOP parking lot, expecting to find his sister waiting for him. When he saw police cars, he immediately pulled away and took off. Right about now, you're probably yelling, why did police park their vehicles where evidence would see them? Chances are, in hindsight, police likely regret that decision. After taking off, evidence led police on a car chase, sometimes at speeds of over 100 miles per hour, 
driving southbound in the northbound lane. The chase finally ended 250 miles away in Sarasota, Florida, where police had placed road spikes in Evidence's path. Once his tires were punctured, Evidence was trapped, sitting inside his Ford Taurus, surrounded by police and police dogs. Evidence took matters into his own hands. He pulled out the same 25 caliber handgun he had used on his victims, put it inside his mouth, and pulled the trigger. The kidnapper, rapist, and serial killer was dead at the age of 38. When Evidence's co-workers discovered they had been working alongside a rapist and murderer for the past four years, they were shocked. However, there were things about him they thought were strange. Many people who worked with him said that Evidence made them feel uncomfortable. Women described him as creepy. Sheriff Smith said, quote, Every female that we've interviewed, everyone, said there was something about him that they just didn't like. He was manipulative and controlling. Management told police that Evidence had been caught viewing X-rated websites on his company-owned laptop during work hours. A supervisor told them about his behavior on several business trips. One of Evidence's job duties as an auditor was to travel with other employees to plants that used the company's air compressor systems. The rest of the employees would go out to dinner, but Evidence would never come with them. He would simply tell them that he'd see them the next morning. The FBI knew of over 20 states Evidence either lived in or traveled to on company business, but they were never able to link him to any unsolved crimes in those areas. After his suicide, Police searched Evidence's vehicle for clues. Fingerprints and a palm print found inside the trunk were matched to Kristen Lisk. This was a lucky break for investigators, as the prints had been placed there over five years prior. Fibers found in the trunk matched those found on the bodies of Sophia Silva and Kristen and Katie Lisk. Richard's apartment was searched by Columbia Police. What they found was a treasure trove they had not expected. Eventually, they would collect over 600 items of evidence. A small rug in the bathroom had fibers that matched all three of the victims. Hairs collected from all three victims' bodies matched evidence. The fuzzy handcuffs that had been used to tie up Kara Robinson had matching fibers found on Sophia, Kristen, and Katie. Police searched for an Afghan they believed would have DNA from his three victims. They would later find the Afghan at Bonnie's home in California, and the DNA they were hoping for was present. Bonnie had no idea the Afghan had been used by her ex-husband to wrap his victims in after he had killed them. Jennifer Harris, Evidence's sister, told police that when he called her on June 27th, He told her he had committed murder and armed robbery in 1986 when he was in Florida. It was as if Evidence was making a final declaration, admitting to his past crimes because he knew this was the end. That said, police were never able to tie him to these crimes. Evidence had a large collection of pornographic tapes in a cabinet next to the TV in his apartment. Investigators counted over 400 of these videos. Columbia PD detective Howell Sinyard, who was also on the team that searched Evidence's apartment, said, quote, 
It's not like you open them up and find his underwear and socks, his t-shirts. It's just tapes after tapes. Many of the tapes were commercial videos with scenes of bondage and sadomasochism. From the videos in his collection, it was evident that Evidence particularly enjoyed scenes of women having their genital areas shaved and them going to the bathroom. Police also found handcuffs, porno magazines, photos of nude women, masks, sex toys, and devices used to restrain for bondage. There was also a computer disc with images of naked girls as young as age nine. And then there was the footlocker, buried under a pile of clothes. Evidence kept this footlocker for years. He always kept it locked and there was only one key. When interviewed later, his wife, Hope, said at times she would ask her husband about what was in the footlocker, but he would never talk about it other than telling her to stay away from it. She said they had even gotten into several arguments over the footlocker. When police opened it, they found evidence connecting Richard to numerous crimes. There were personal items from Sophia, Kristen, and Katie, which they had with them the day they were abducted. There were also countless pairs of female underwear of different sizes from the age of infant up to adult. Many of them had holes in the crotch area. Unfortunately, none of the underwear had enough DNA to be tested for evidence. There was also a collection of porn tapes in the footlocker. Some were videos of evidence himself wearing women's underwear and masturbating. Also in the footlocker was a copy of the Fredericksburg Freelance Star from May 2, 1997, which had coverage about the abduction of the Lisk sisters. And then there were the notes. Scraps of paper and envelopes with writing on them were found inside the footlocker. Evanitz had written notes describing details about how he stalked different women and girls. One note mentioned Blockhouse Road, where the Lisk family lived, along with a description of two white females, one of them 11 or 12, and the other 14 or 15. He also jotted down this detail, quote, brunettes, and quote, very cute. Sophia, Kristen, and Katie were all brunettes. There was also a note describing the woman who evidence planned to abduct on June 24th, but didn't because she changed her routine that day. That unsuccessful mission led to evidence abducting Kara instead. Richland County Sheriff Leon Lott talked about a specific note found in Evanitz's apartment with directions to an old farmhouse and a four-digit number written on it. Those four digits were part of a mailbox number for a farmhouse where 17-year-old Laurel Thomas lived with her family. A second note had Laurel's full address on it and a description of a, quote, brune, police assumed that meant brunette, and, quote, 12 or 13, thin, pretty. He also noted that she would be alone from 3.30 to 4 p.m. When police questioned her, Laurel said she did not remember ever seeing evidence and that he had never approached her. Laurel said this about it, quote, It is kind of scary that some guy is out there looking at me. I don't know why he didn't get me. Evidence also had a written description and home address for 16-year-old Catherine Howard. He noted the following about Catherine, quote, A little blonde, 
10, 11, 12, max, and that her brother would be present. Catherine's brother, 19-year-old John Howard, said, quote, I am just shocked something like this could happen to us. You see it in the news and wouldn't think it would be in your own neighborhood. Another note indicated evidence was stalking a girl in Lexington County, South Carolina, before he had abducted Kara. The note described the house and garage where the woman lived, but gave no information that police could use to identify her. Neither Columbia, South Carolina, nor Spotsylvania County, Virginia law enforcement had ever heard of Richard Evanitz before his suicide. He had no criminal record in either location and had not registered as a sex offender when he moved from Florida, where he had exposed himself to the young girls in 1987. He actually wasn't required to register as a sex offender because in 1993, when he moved to Virginia, the law did not require it. The Lisk Silva Law Enforcement Task Force received over 12,000 leads from the public between the time the three girls were murdered and Evidence's suicide. They had investigated a long list of suspects and served numerous search warrants, but his name had never come up. Evidence's known victims were low risk as they were abducted outside their homes until Kara Robinson made her escape. Evidence had not left any witnesses. It was discovered after his death that at the time Sophia was abducted, Evidence lived only a few houses away from the Silva family. In August of 2002, Kara Robinson who bravely escaped from Evidence's house, received the $150,000 reward that had been offered for anyone leading police to her abductor. She had also been looking for a job that summer. Sheriff Lott offered her a position doing office work at the sheriff's station. Kara accepted, and in fact, she worked there the entire time she was in college. She originally wanted to become a teacher, but enjoyed her work at the sheriff's office so much she found a way to combine the two roles. She decided to become a school resource officer. Kara applied to and was accepted into the South Carolina Criminal Justice Academy. She was the only female in her class. When she started the academy, none of her fellow cadets had any idea that Kara had been Richard Evidence's final victim. In one of her classes, the Evidence case was mentioned by the instructor. After that class session, Kara spoke privately to the instructor. She said, quote, At the end of class, I went up to her and I said, I just wanted to let you know that lesson you just taught, that was me. And obviously, no one at the academy at that point knew. The director knew because he used to work at the sheriff's department, but no one else knew. On Friday, August 20th, 2010, Kara Robinson graduated from the South Carolina Criminal Justice Academy. She received the Academy's Courage Award and accepted it to a standing ovation. Kara is now married with two sons. She's taken time away from her job as a sheriff's deputy to stay home with her children. She said the second evidence forced her into his car, she decided that she would be a survivor, not a victim, saying, quote, I think that to say you're a victim 
Then someone took something from you. Nothing was taken from me. I refuse to give that man that power. In November of 1997, a monument dedicated to Sofia Silva and Kristen and Katie Lisk was placed outside the C. Melvin Snow Memorial Library in Spotsylvania. The monument is in the shape of a large leaf with a ladybug on it. Kristen loved ladybugs. The monument inscription reads, Forever young, forever in our hearts, in memory of Sophia M. Silva, 1980-1996, Catherine Katie N. Lisk, 1984-1997, Kristen M. Lisk, 1982-1997. They were taken from us too soon. While investigating evidence, police in Virginia and South Carolina discovered that his job as a salesman took him to different areas of the country. They believe there were probably many other crimes that he committed, from 1993, when he moved to Fredericksburg, to 1999, when he moved back to Columbia, to his death in June of 2002. Unlike today, there was no easy way to check on a person's past criminal history. CODIS, Combined DNA Index System, which is the federal criminal DNA database, would not come online until October of 1998, and even then, federal law only allowed DNA from convicted felons and DNA from crime scenes of unsolved crimes to be listed in the database. Richard Evanitz had never been convicted of a felony. The law was changed in January of 2018 to include the DNA of persons arrested for felonies to be entered into CODIS. In Evanitz's case, he had never been arrested for a felony, so his DNA still would not have been entered into the system. The FBI began the painstaking task of contacting detectives in any states where Evanitz lived or traveled to in order to find out about any unsolved crimes to which he might be linked. The head of the Lisk Silva Task Force, Major Howard Smith, believe that evidence was responsible for the 1994 rape of a woman working at a McDonald's in Massapona, Virginia, which is about 11 miles south of Fredericksburg. That case remains unsolved to this day. Arlington County, Virginia authorities were interested in evidence for a string of rapes in the 1980s. The suspect in several of the attacks matched his description. His father moved to Arlington when he separated from evidence's mother and police thought he may have visited his father at times, particularly when he was on leave during his time in the Navy. Unfortunately, evidence would not be linked to any of these assaults. Police believed evidence was involved in other high-profile crimes, and they got right to work trying to find links in hopes of solving these cases. The first high-profile case to which police tried to connect evidence was the still unsolved case of the Route 29 stalker. Between January 17th and March 2nd of 1996, at least 23 women reported to police that they had been approached by a man while driving on Route 29 in Culpeper County, Virginia, which borders Spotsylvania County. The man always chose petite women with brunette hair who were driving by themselves. He would try to get the attention of the women either by honking, flashing his headlights, or pulling up alongside them and motioning for them to pull over. The women who did pull over 
said the man told them that he saw something wrong with the vehicles they were driving. Typically, he would say there were sparks coming from underneath their vehicle, and then he'd offer to give them a ride, claiming their vehicle wasn't safe to drive. He would also tell them to leave an item tied to the vehicle to show that it had been disabled. Four of these women accepted rides from the stranger, thinking he was being a good Samaritan. The first two women were dropped off at their homes just like the man promised. He identified himself as Larry Breeden to at least two of the women. Other witnesses said that he wore a wedding ring. On February 23, 1996, Carmelita Shomo was driving home from her job at the Manassas Mall when she saw flashing headlights in her rearview mirror. As she pulled over, she saw a pickup truck parked on the shoulder behind her. A man got out and told her that he saw sparks coming from underneath her vehicle. He told her it was not safe to drive the car in that condition and offered to give her a ride home. Not knowing what else to do, cell phones were not common in 1996. She accepted his offer. Carmelita got into the passenger side of the man's pickup truck and they headed for her home. Carmelita said the man, who told her his name was Larry, kept pulling over to the side of the road, complaining that headlights of oncoming vehicles were causing a glare on his windshield, making it hard for him to see. After a couple of minutes, he would pull back onto Route 29 and head toward the direction Carmelita was directing him to go. When they were back on the highway, Larry asked Carmelita how she would get her car back home since it was on the side of the highway. He said he would be glad to go back to get her car, have Carmelita drive his truck, and he would drive her car back to her house. At this point, Carmelita became nervous. Deciding she didn't want Larry to know where she lived, she asked him to drop her off at a gas station they were coming up on. Instead, Larry drove past the gas station and kept going. A minute later, he pulled over to the side of the road, again complaining about the glare on his windshield. He asked Carmelita to get a tissue out of the side pocket of the passenger door. When she turned to get the tissue, Larry suddenly attacked her. He had a screwdriver in one hand and used his other hand to grab the back of her head and attempted to force it into his lap. Carmelita fought back. While the two struggled, the passenger side door came open and Carmelita managed to tumble out. She grabbed at her purse as she was sliding out of the truck and caught one of her feet in the seatbelt. Larry pulled back onto the road, dragging Carmelita several yards until she was able to free her foot. She fell onto the road, breaking her ankle. The taillights of Larry's truck were slowly disappearing up the highway. Carmelita was able to get to the closest house for help. The couple who lived at the house called police and transported her to the hospital. When police questioned her, Carmelita, who was from the Philippines and didn't speak very good English, could not make them understand that she had been abducted by a stranger. Due to the communication breakdown, there was no all-points bulletin and no detective assigned to her case until the next morning, when the situation finally became clear. During the hours between Carmelita escaping and the police understanding that a stranger had attacked her, Three more local women were approached by Larry, who told them that something was wrong with their cars. Fortunately, none of them accepted a ride from him. 
Between February 26, the two days after Carmelita was attacked, and March 2nd, five more women were stopped by the Route 29 stalker, seeming to show that his behavior was escalating. None of the women got into the truck with him. The fifth woman was approached on March 2nd, around 10.15 a.m., but she did not pull her vehicle over. Minutes later, the stalker would find his last known victim. Alicia Showalter Reynolds, a 25-year-old doctoral student at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, left the home she shared with her husband of one year. She began driving the 150-mile trip to visit with her mother in Charlottesville, Virginia. She disappeared along Route 29 in Culpeper County and was never seen alive again. She was seen on the side of the road where her mercury tracer would be found abandoned later. Alicia was seen talking to a man who had been driving a pickup. The hood of the tracer was up and Alicia and the man were looking at the engine. Two witnesses claimed to see Alicia getting into the man's truck. Alicia's car was found abandoned around 6 p.m. that evening, right where witnesses reported seeing her talking to the man with the pickup truck. Then, as suddenly as he had begun to stalk women, Larry simply disappeared. After Alicia's abduction, no more reports of a man trying to get women to pull over were made. On Tuesday, May 7th, a man walking along a country road discovered Alicia's body. Because she was found more than two months after her abduction, her body was too decomposed to gather any useful evidence. The description given by witnesses of the Route 29 stalker was of a white male, 35 to 45 years old, 5 foot 10 to 6 foot tall, medium build with brown hair. Richard Evidence was 33 years old at the time, around 5 foot 9 feet tall and 150 to 175 pounds with brown hair. He fit the Route 29 stalker's description. He also lived in the area during that time and knew the roads well. That said, a lot of men in the United States fit that same description as it was fairly general. Daryl David Rice, whom many considered to be the Route 29 stalker, was also around the same height and build, and photos show him with brown hair, although he was balding and witnesses did not describe a balding man. Rice was 28 years old during the Route 29 stalker's reign. Rice lived in Maryland, but often stayed with his father in Culpeper during the early months of 1996. Both Rice and Evidence had pickup trucks. Several women approached by the stalker said that he wore a wedding ring. Evidence was married during this time to his first wife, Bonnie. Rice was not married. Police knew from the notes they found in Evidence's locker that before he was caught, he frequently drove many of the back roads in Culpeper County. His wife, Bonnie, sometimes accompanied him, thinking he was taking her sightseeing as the area around Spotsylvania is home to several Civil War battlefields. Investigators realized that on these trips, Evidence was scouting for areas where he could abduct females and dump their bodies. Notes in his footlocker referred to different places he had discovered and directions to homes of potential victims. On one of these scouting trips, Evidence found a bridge on Route 738 that went over the South Anna River which was about 30 miles from his home in Spotsylvania. 
The bodies of Kristen and Katie Lisk were found in the South Anna River. The strongest piece of evidence that may tie evidence with the Route 29 stalker was the writing on one of his notes. On the note, he wrote, quote, 29 North, directions to take a right on 663 and crossing a highway that began with G. Route 29 in Virginia intersects with Route 3 in Culpeper County, which is called Fredericksburg Road in Fredericksburg. Route 3 continues on and intersects with Route 663 at Stevensonburg, where it's called Germana Highway. Continuing on Germana Highway from Stevensonburg, the village of Lignum is less than five miles away. Alicia Showalter Reynolds' body was found in Lignum, Virginia, near Route 3, also known as Germana Highway. Alicia's abandoned vehicle was found on Route 29, where witnesses reported her talking to a man that generally fit Evidence's and Rice's descriptions. Another murder that occurred on Route 29, to which police think Evidence may be linked, is that of Anne Carolyn McDaniel. On September 18, 1996, the 20-year-old left President Madison Inn, the group home in Orange, Virginia, where she was living. After leaving, Carolyn was never seen alive again. Her burned remains were discovered four days later on September 22nd, near a hunting cabin, about 10 miles from where Alicia's body had been found only four months prior. Carolyn had told some of her housemates that she was meeting someone for a date the night she disappeared, but she did not give any information about her date. Anne's case remains unsolved today. Only 11 days after Alicia's body was discovered, another high-profile crime occurred and evidence is suspected of being involved. It's the case of two murdered women, Laura Lolly Winans and Julianne Williams. In late May of 1996, the two women drove from Vermont to go hiking and camping at Shenandoah National Park, about 70 miles from Fredericksburg. Lolly and Julianne would never leave the park alive. On May 31st, the women's dog, a golden retriever named Taj, was found wandering around the park. The next day, Lolly and Julianne's bodies were found near Skyline Drive, the 105-mile highway that runs through the park. They were naked and bound, and both had their throats slit. Over 15,000 leads came into police about the murders. A year later, police were no closer to solving the case. Then, on July 7, 1997, Daryl David Rice was arrested for attacking Yvonne Malbasha, a Canadian woman who had come to Shenandoah National Park to ride her bike along the highway. She was riding on Skyline Drive when Rice passed her in his Chevy S10 pickup truck and forced her off the road. He got out of his vehicle and tried to drag her into his truck, screaming sexual profanities at her the entire time. Yvonne was able to get away and run off the highway behind a fallen tree. Rice got back into his pickup truck and rammed the tree several times, but eventually gave up and sped away. A park ranger found Yvonne a few minutes later and called in the attack on his radio. Rice was stopped by park rangers before he could leave the park. In the few minutes between the attack and being stopped by rangers, Rice had already changed the clothes he was wearing when he attacked Yvonne. He had also reattached the license plates to his pickup truck, 
which he had removed to avoid being caught. When the rangers searched his truck, they found hand and leg restraints. Rice had a known hatred of women. He had been fired from his job as a computer programmer the month before because of his hostility toward co-workers. It was reported that Rice screamed sexual profanities at co-workers, punched a hole in the bathroom wall, stole food from co-workers, and intentionally bumped into others as they passed in the hallways, causing them to drop whatever they were carrying. Rice pled guilty to the attack on Yvonne and was sentenced to 135 months in federal prison. He soon became a suspect in the murders of Lolly and Julianne from the year prior. Investigators looked into Rice for five years to gather as much as they could before they believed they were ready to arrest him. They had numerous inmates who came forward, claiming that Rice admitted to killing Lolly and Julianne. One said that Rice talked to the women, and when he found out they were lesbians, he tried to rape them, although autopsies showed that neither woman had been sexually assaulted. At one time, an undercover FBI agent was put into a cell with Rice. He was wearing a wire and trying to get Rice to admit to the killings. Although Rice never claimed that he was involved, he did say on tape, quote, If they're in a tent, though, they're kind of cornered. See, I think he knocked them out in the tent or something and then dragged them out, tied them, and one got throat cut or something. Lolly and Julianne both had facial bruising that the medical examiner said was consistent with blunt force trauma. The medical examiner believed that Lolly and Julianne were killed around 10 p.m. on May 28th, although the method used to determine time of death is thought to be unreliable by most pathologists. The ME measured levels of potassium in the victim's eye fluid in order to determine the time of death. Rice was at work in Maryland on May 28th, although prosecutors said he could have made it to the park after he got off work, in time to kill the women. Federal investigators, who were involved due to the murders occurring on federal property, believed the women were killed on May 24th, not May 28th. They pointed to the women's camera, which had pictures on the roll all the way up to the afternoon of the 24th. Furthermore, Neither woman wrote in their diary after the 24th. The women purchased a camping permit with an expiration date of May 27th. Julianne had to be at work in Vermont by the 29th, and the couple would have needed to leave the park by the 27th to make it back in time. Rice was seen on video entering the park on May 25th and 26th by himself. On June 1st, the day Lolly and Julianne's bodies were found, he was seen coming back into the park with a married couple with whom he was friends. Rice denied being at the park on May 24th. Video from that day did not show Rice entering or exiting the park, however. The video camera at the entrance he would have most likely used was not working that day. In 2002, a man who had been camping at the park with his girlfriend, near where Lolly and Julianne's bodies were found, picked out a photo of Rice as the man he had seen at the park at the time, but said he was only 65-70% to 70% sure it was Rice. Police believe they finally had enough to charge Rice. He was arrested for the murders of Lolly and Julianne and indicted in 2002. If convicted, he faced a possible death sentence for a hate crime, as prosecutors claimed he murdered Lolly and Julianne 
because they were lesbians. Rice was not shy about his hatred of women, particularly lesbians. In a March 4, 2003 interview with U.S. Marshal Larry Carter, Rice admitted that he has a, quote, rage against women and that he wanted to run women off the road, but claimed he never acted on it. When asked about Alicia, Rice said he had never heard of her. In 2003, DNA analysis from two hairs found at the scene where Lolly and Julianne were murdered determined that they did not belong to Rice or either of the victims. One of the hairs was found on a piece of duct tape that was used to tie Lolly up. The second piece of hair was found on a glove near the tent the women were sleeping in. Despite proof that Rice had been in the park around the time of the murders, authorities had no direct evidence tying him to the murders. Charges against Rice were dropped without prejudice, meaning that Rice could be charged again in the future. The forensic team who examined the DNA said the hairs could belong to around 8% of the United States population. Rice was not in that 8%. Richard Evanitz, however, was included. Rice's defense attorneys made sure to point that fact out during trial. Unfortunately, since Evanitz was dead, he could not be questioned about the murders. Evanitz took off work for several days after Memorial Day of 1996, which was May 27th, claiming that he had a family emergency he needed to tend to. However, even though there was a family member of his on their deathbed, Evanitz did not show up for the emergency until June 1st. And if the murders were committed on Friday the 24th or Saturday the 25th, Evanitz would have been off work during that time. Lolly and Julianne, who were in their mid-20s, did not fit the profile of Evanitz's victims in his known crimes which were focused on young teenage girls who he abducted in broad daylight near their homes. However, serial killers and rapists will sometimes take victims of opportunity when presented with them. It was also thought that evidence did not commit his first murder, that of Sofia Silva, until September of 1996, three months after Lolly and Julianne were killed. In addition, Lolly and Julianne were found naked and evidence redressed his victims. However, evidence did use sexual devices to torture his victims. A sexual device, similar to one that evidence had, was found at the murder scene of Lolly and Julianne, and he lived in the area during the time of the attacks. Evidence had committed at least three murders. Rice, however, had no criminal record until his attack on Yvonne. Michael Nicolau is a third possible suspect for the Route 29 stalker and the murders at Shenandoah National Park. Nicolau, who murdered his wife and stepdaughter on New Year's Eve in 2005, before killing himself, is a person some people believe is responsible for the Connecticut River killings and the Colonial Parkway murders. Nicolau had brown hair, a medium build, and somewhat resembled the sketch of the Route 29 stalker, although he usually wore a mustache. In 2005, Daryl Rice went on trial for the abduction of Carmelita Shomo after she identified him as the man who tried to abduct her in 1996. Due to inconsistencies in her statements, prosecutors eventually agreed to a plea deal with Rice, where he would receive no additional time while serving his sentence 
for the July 1997 attack of Yvonne on Skyline Drive. Carmelita testified that Rice was her attacker, but Rice's defense team showed that Carmelita had also identified Richard Evidence's picture as the man who abducted her. She had also previously picked out the photo of a Virginia State trooper as being the stalker. The defense's investigator, Leanna Piles, said that when she showed Carmelita the picture of Evidence, quote, she became visibly shaken. She got tears in her eyes. She said, quote, that's him, that's him, I recognize his eyes. Another woman, Ann Ferguson, had reported being stopped on Route 29 by the stalker. When Rice's attorney showed her photos of both Evidence and Rice, she picked Evidence saying, quote, I broke out in goosebumps, cold chills went down my spine. I'm 101% sure. The court ruled that the accounts of the other women who were approached by the Route 29 stalker were too prejudicial to be used. Lyell Chapman, a former co-worker of Richard Evidence's in Fredericksburg, came forward when she saw his picture on TV after his suicide. She said that Evidence talked about trying to get women to pull over on the highway by telling them he saw a problem with their vehicles. Lyell said, quote, When he came into the shop one afternoon, he said he had been trying to pick up this woman on the highway, but he spooked her out. He started punching the wall and shaking it until it got loose. Route 29 in Virginia is an area where a number of missing persons were last seen and where other victims' bodies were found. Although some circumstantial evidence exists that could indicate a link between Richard Evidence and the Route 29 crimes, we will likely never know for certain whether he was the Route 29 stalker, and we will likely never know the actual number of serious crimes he committed in his lifetime. If you'd like to discuss this case with me, head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group. You can also chat with me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, do me a big favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Tell a friend about Murderish or leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes. Also, stick around at the very end of this episode to hear a promo for Murder Mile Tours, a really unique true crime podcast. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com murderish, where your monthly support will give you access to perks like bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast, discount codes at the merch store, and other cool stuff. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other swaggy stuff available. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderish, J-A-M-I, at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Murderish researcher Steve Field. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018, is based on my five-star rated guided walk, and features more than 300 untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, old cases through a fresh pair of ears, and classic cases with a twist, all researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favourite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening, and stay safe.